Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a familiar one, the economist and former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, who will tie up a few loose ends from our interview in October about his books, Adults in the Room, and then we'll address the lack of thinking around a progressive internationalism. But before that, I'm going to indulge in a rare bit of holding forth on my own on the topic of Bitcoin. I thought of having a guest do that, but since I wrote a piece on the topic for The Nation back in 2014, and I've been keeping up with it ever since, I thought I was as qualified as anyone to do the work. Some of what I'm about to say is drawn from that article, but it's updated with material from the shimmering present. Bitcoin, once a fairly arcane topic, is now everywhere. The market pundit Robert Prechter, who is a great psychologist of financial markets, despite being a devoted follower of Ayn Rand and believing in a piece of superstition called the Elliott Wave Theory, once argued that in the course of a major bull market, there's something called a point of recognition when the general public hops on board. When that happens, it means it's getting late in the run and it's time for pros to think about getting out, though a serious mania can go on well after John and Jane Q get involved. It sure seems like we're at or even beyond that point with Bitcoin, whose price trajectory over the last few years resembles some of history's great manias, like the Dutch tulip bulb frenzy of the 1630s, the South Sea bubble of the 1710s, and the U.S. stock market orgies of the 1920s and 1990s. What's going on? Before getting into the details, I should say that money in general is not a simple topic. Most people have a good understanding of how gold, which is something of a primal money, is mined, refined, and shaped into ingots or coins, but it's slightly less obvious why it has a monetary status, unlike, say, platinum. But gold is rare, pure, easily divisible, and has been highly cherished throughout the ages. Paper money is more complex. From 1900 through 1971, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold, meaning its value is legally defined by a certain weight of that metal. That arrangement ended in 1971, when Richard Nixon shocked the world by breaking the link to gold and allowing its value to be determined by trading in the foreign exchange markets. The dollar is valuable not because it's as good as gold, as once was said, but because you can buy goods and services produced in the U.S. with it, and crucially, it's the only form in which U.S. government will accept tax payments. Among its many functions, the Federal Reserve is supposed to allow the issuance of just the right quantity of dollars, enough to keep the wheels of commerce well greased, but not so much that things slip off the tracks into a hyperinflationary crisis. Bitcoin is another animal entirely. It is the first and most famous of a large and growing family of things called cryptocurrencies. Other family members include Ethereum, Ripple, Dash, Monero, but Bitcoin is by far the largest. The total value of existing bitcoins is now about $261 billion. That's a third bigger than the total value of Citigroup stock and slightly below the total value of Wells Fargo stock outstanding. Real banks with millions of customers making real money. Bitcoin's origins are in a 2008 paper written by the pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto. Despite repeated attempts, no one can figure out who he is appropriately enough. The semi-official definition of a cryptocurrency is a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized digital currency whose implementation relies on the principles of cryptography to validate the transactions and the generation of the currency itself. While that is a dense slab of prose, to be fair to the cryptoids, it wouldn't be easy to define the dollar succinctly either. What all that means is that Bitcoin and the rest are electronic currencies created and transferred by network computers with no one in charge. Every Bitcoin includes a blockchain, a digital record of the unit's transaction history, but all anonymously. The role of cryptography is not merely to guarantee the security of the transaction, but also to generate new units of the currency, all with no identity trace. New units of cryptocurrencies are mined by having computers solve complicated but pointless mathematical algorithms. 
once solved, a coin is created in its birth with a digital signature guaranteeing authenticity and uniqueness announced to the rest of the system. The creator earns the value of the new coin when it enters the system. You can buy or sell Bitcoin on online exchanges, and there are even a few Bitcoin ATMs scattered about. The closest one to me in Brooklyn is about two miles away. The closest U.S. dollar ATM is half a block away. Bitcoin mining requires enormous amounts of computing power. According to some estimates, Bitcoin's power use may already equal that of 3 million U.S. homes, topping the individual consumption of 159 countries. The bulk of this mining goes on in China, where most of the electricity comes from coal, so this is a very dirty business. The number of Bitcoins in circulation is supposed to top out at 21 million. We're approaching 17 million now. As the limit is approached, the coin-creating algorithms get more difficult to solve, meaning more computing power is required and more carbon is generated. Even the most seemingly immaterial of things often have deeply material roots. I should emphasize that the algorithms used to generate Bitcoin are pointless. They serve no useful purpose. To some partisans, that's a good thing, because if they were tied to some useful activity, that might confer some intrinsic value upon the currency. Best let its value float freely, limited only by the human imagination. That's the technology of Bitcoin. What about it as money? The classic economist definition of money is that it's a store of value, a unit of account, and a medium of exchange. You go to the store and find a can of tomatoes is priced at $3, a unit of account, which the store will book as revenue when it's sold. You take $3 out of your pocket or your debit card, and you draw down the store of value, the cash on hand or in the bank, and use it as a medium of exchange. You exchange cash for the tomatoes. The value of the U.S. dollar is that everyone in the U.S. and beyond recognizes the currency as fulfilling successfully all these tests of money. The dollar is valorized by the goods and services that it can buy. Bitcoin has serious problems in all three aspects. Over the last week alone, the value of Bitcoin has varied from about $15,000 to $21,000. A year ago, it was worth just over $800. That's not a very reliable store of value. Almost no one accepts Bitcoin, nor do any businesses of note keep their books in Bitcoin. It fails both as a unit of account and as a medium of exchange. And its short history, the first Bitcoins were minted in 2009, has been very turbulent. There have been multiple thefts, frauds, and hackings, which partisans dismiss as growing pains. But with no regulator, no deposit insurance, and no central bank, this sort of thing is inevitable. It's just tough luck. Introduce regulations and insurance schemes, and Bitcoin will lose all its anarcho charm. Gold is like Bitcoin in being a stateless form of money, which is why libertarians love it, but it does far better on the store of value measure. The price of gold typically varies by less than 1% a day, but its price is still more volatile than that much maligned U.S. dollar. Gold, then, is a fairly reliable store of value. But gold does little better on the other measures. There's not much you can buy with it, and almost nothing is priced in or accounted for in gold. Despite that, gold retains an enormous phantasmic appeal, some objective, market-determined measure of value, unsullied by state intervention. Keynes called gold part of the apparatus of conservatism. That was an old conservatism, that of rentiers who loved austerity because it preserved the value of their assets. Bitcoin serves a similarly totemic purpose for today's cyber-libertarians, who love not only the statelessness of it as money, but also its power to disrupt. Bitcoin is part of the apparatus of anarcho-capitalism. The political cast of the Bitcoin universe is mostly libertarian, but it does have a left wing. A paper written a few years ago by Dennis Jaramil Royo, 
a hacker, artist, and graduate student, deploys quotations from Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, Giorgio Agamben, and Christian Marazzi to give Bitcoin a revolutionary spin, creatively reading it as a way for the multitude to construct its body beyond language. He does not explain how transforming the monetary instrument will change what is produced or how incomes are distributed. There's something to be said for Bitcoin's anonymity, though you have to wonder how impenetrable its veil is to the National Security Agency. For now, it's a pretty safe way to buy drugs and weapons. But aside from anonymity, which is nothing to sneeze at, it's hard to see what problem Bitcoin solves. The switch to paper money was a response to the crisis of the old gold-centered system. There's no practical value to Bitcoin, aside from anonymity, but it does carry political baggage. Leaving aside the entrepreneurs and speculators who are just looking to get rich on the thing, the political vision of Bitcoin is of a decentered, stateless world with competing money systems. Competitive money ending the state monopoly over money, has long been a dream of the right. In a 1976 paper, Friedrich Hayek argued for allowing multiple currencies to circulate within individual countries. Competition would lead to the use of the soundest, meaning the most austerity-friendly, and put a check on government's attempts to inflate their way out of trouble. That would mean no fiscal or monetary stimulus in an economic crisis. Just let things run their purgative course. In this view, the New Deal lengthened the Great Depression. Had the bloodletting continued after Roosevelt's inauguration, things would have righted themselves eventually. And we should have done the same in 2008-2009, according to this view. Cryptocurrencies would be an advance on the idea of competitive currencies. Improvised units that could challenge the state monopoly itself. Actually, we had competing currencies in the 19th century. All kinds of little banks issued banknotes that often turned out to be worthless. Of course, there is no inflation now, and government money has proved far more stable than its alternatives, either gold or bitcoin. No bank depositor lost a dime in the financial crisis of 2008. You can't say the same about Bitcoin in its short life. But libertarians, and there are lots of them in tech and finance, the co-parents of Bitcoin, are always worrying about inflation. They worry about it the same way that hedge fund titans see talk of lifting their tax breaks as a rerun of Nazi Germany. So even though Bitcoin fails as money, it's acquired a vivid life as a speculative asset. But unlike more conventional speculative assets, its value is completely immaterial. Stocks are ultimately claims on corporate profits, and bonds are a claim on a future stream of interest payments. You can say no such thing for Bitcoin. Its only value is what someone else will pay for it later today or maybe tomorrow. And now they're trading futures on it, which takes speculation into a fourth or fifth dimension. And what a speculative mania it is. Everyone wants to be part of the action, though it's impossible to say what the ultimate payoff will be. Bitcoin imitators are sprouting daily. The other day, speculators forked over $700 million to a company, Block.1, for a cryptocurrency that doesn't exist and, according to its sponsors, has no discernible purpose. The company has disclosed almost no information about itself, and almost nothing is known about its founders. Early on Thursday morning, the Long Island Tea Corp, which sells non-alcoholic beverage, announced a change in its name to Long Blockchain, and its stock price promptly more than doubled. The firm has no agreements with any cryptocurrency promoters, nor does it have prospects for any. The mere name change did the trick. It's all nuts, but my guess is that it's not the kind of bubble that will cause broad economic damage when it pops. For that to happen, the bubble would have to be financed by banks that will be put at risk of failure when things fall apart. Banks are the connection between the speculative realm and the real world. But this doesn't seem to be happening. But shirts will be lost. More seriously, though, this bubble shows that some people just have too much money. Our society, and I mean that broadly since a lot of the money going into Bitcoin looks to be coming from Asia, has plenty of cash for speculation and not much for human need. 
Okay, after a musical break, we'll be back with Giannis Varoufakis. Some of Money is Not Our God by Killing Joke. And now on to Yanis Varoufakis, the economist, former Greek finance minister, and author of Adults in the Room, his memoir of negotiating with the European financial authorities during Greece's crisis. I wanted to talk with Yanis, who has been organizing an effort to democratize the European Union, the Democracy in Europe 2025 movement, DM25, about the lack of a left discourse and internationalism. But first, I wanted him to clarify some issues in the book. Yanis Varoufakis. Before we get to the uh, the topic of globalization and its discontents, a couple of people wanted me to ask you a follow-up question uh, to uh, the Adults in the Room interview we did a few months ago. Your colleagues uh, in the government and in Syriza, people wanted to hear some detail about um, what their reaction was to your your scheme to have a tax-based currency and you know the, the default on the bonds that would throw uh, the Germany into great legal trouble. What was your reaction to your colleagues? Did they just shrug it off? Did they ignore it? Uh, did they Were they skeptical that... The, improvised monetary system would work? How'd that not go down? Well, first things first. This proposal of mine did not uh, come out of the blue and did not come during the the stressful clash with uh, the the lenders. Uh, I had tabled that proposal to the leadership of Syriza well before we entered government. And in a sense, it was one of the reasons, maybe a main reason why the offer was made to um, take over the finance ministry because it was um, uh, a payment system which uh, would have created uh, a great deal of degrees of freedom, uh, several degrees of freedom and liquidity at the time when we were anticipating the squeeze, the liquidity squeeze that the central bank would uh, impose upon us. I had actually, as I say in the book, I had tabled uh, this proposal um, in quite great detail, including you know some mathematical analysis of uh, the effect it would have on our liquidity, the effect it would have on the sustainability of the fiscal path in the next few years, uh, and um, this was submitted to Alexis Tsipras and his team in in the end towards the end of November of 2014. It was fully accepted, and I have to say enthusiastically accepted. Uh, But of course, this was a small team of the leadership. Once we entered government, in, I think, the second cabinet meeting, I made uh, quite an elaborate presentation, a verbal presentation, of the parallel payment system and the way in which it could be the source of funding for... um, 
the anti-poverty program that we were implementing at the same time. Uh, and I have to tell you that the reaction around the cabinet was uh, even more enthusiastic. Indeed, uh, as the cabinet meeting was uh, drawing to a close, uh, many of my ministerial colleagues would pat me on the back and one or two of them even declared that they felt moved by these proposals. And then uh, the, the scheme to uh, haircut the, the bonds that would cause legal trouble in Germany, how they, what do they think of that? Well, they thought it was a very good idea that uh, if you're going to uh, deter the bank closures that were always coming, we always knew that they were coming, or at least the threat was going to be uh, clear and present, uh, you need uh, to have uh, an ace up your sleeve. You need to um, convince the other side that um, uh, if they do it, then in the end they will end up with a much greater uh, problem in their hands, um, and namely the fact that they would not be able to keep Italy in the euro. When the crunch came, though, um, they, was the pull of orthodoxy too great? Uh, they obviously threw these plans over overboard. So what happened? Well, as I explained in the book, and this is the most painful part of the book, or actually writing the book, I was trying to, 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 to narrate this. It's a very slow, a drip, drip, Chinese torture kind of uh, process. There was never any contestation of the agreement that we had that we will, that defaulting uh, to the uh, International Monetary Fund, that defaulting on those bonds if the Troika carried out its plan of squeezing us, effectively carrying out a coup d'etat using the banks. Uh, there was never any, any, not once did anyone, including the prime minister and, or, or any other member of the inner cabinet, uh, even those who were opposing in reality that, that deterrence uh, plan, not once did they contest the wisdom of using those weapons. What they were doing uh, week in, week out was to say, oh, not yet. Yes, we will use them if they throttle us, but not yet. Uh, let's not lose the blame game. Let's not be the ones that um, put the retaliation, retaliation in first. Let's wait for them to see if they will close down the banks. Let's exhaust all possibilities for them to, to come to us with uh, a decent proposal. In the meantime, they would, the prime minister behind my back would make concessions which were signaling to the lenders that uh, our resolve or his resolve had weakened. But not once, and this, this is my, I'm insisting in, in repeating this, not once did he turn around to say to me, no, 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 we're not going to do it. We're not going to default on the IMF. We're not going to default on the ECB. We're not going to use the parallel payment system. It was always a bit later. Not yet. Not yet. We will do it, Yanis. We will do it, but not yet. Now, of course, as time was uh, passing, it, it, it was clear that um, the resolve uh, was um, withering. And, uh, but, I, you know, this is the reason why I stayed in government up until the 6th of July. I wanted to exhaust all, all possibilities uh, for the activation of that, which everybody said we were going to activate, even though I could see that they didn't really mean it. And it was on the night of the referendum when we had a fantastic mandate to activate that, <laughs> that plan. Um, and Alexis Tsipras wanted to surrender, decided, announced to me that he was going to surrender, that uh, um, I had no alternative but to resign. Okay, uh, now on to uh, the issues of separatism and globalization. Now, there are separatist movements all over Europe, uh, Catalonia, 
Brexit, of course, uh, we've seen a, um, uh, a revival of some of the, the separatist movements in Italy, a rise in regional sentiments, uh, nationalist sentiments. Do you see a common thread among these things? And What's your diagnosis? Where, where, what, what's driving these things? Where do they come from? Well, to put it succinctly, the inane handling by, by our establishment of the 2008 great financial crisis. But then there's not been much interest in you know, the kind of project you're undertaking uh, of transforming the EU. It's all taken the forms of regionalism or nationalism rather than any kind of um, internationalist sentiment. Um, it's, it's like the only alternatives are neoliberal globalization and um, some kind of uh, uh, trip into a backward into the past that may not have actually existed. It was uh, this, what I referred to, the inane handling of an inevitable crisis. The, the crisis happened. It was inevitable that it would happen, given the flimsy architecture of the Eurozone. When the crisis happened, there was pure denial that this was a systemic crisis. It was treated piecemeal. It was treated as a crisis of the Greek public debt, which was due to the Greeks, or the Irish banks, which was due to the Irish, uh, or the, you know, the Spanish um, construction uh, uh, sector, which was due to the Spanish. Complete denial that all these sub-crises were part of a larger crisis of the architecture, of the, the neoliberal architecture, the gold standard-like architecture of the Eurozone. When, of course, you treat a systemic crisis non-systematically and uh, you, you firefight, you keep chasing uh, your own tail while supposedly trying to resolve this crisis, and the tool that you use is a massive, vulgar, brutish redistribution from the have-nots to the haves through austerity policies while bailing out the bankers uh, and uh, providing huge liquidity to massive oligopolies uh, in a manner that does not stimulate investment but creates huge increases in inequality and um, the complete eradication of hope in the minds of very large majorities around Europe, well, you're you're, you're asking for trouble. Then you're going to have nativism, you're going to have parochialism, you're, you're going to have, to have separatism, you, you're going to end up with uh, Brexit, for instance. Uh, Brexit is a result, as far as I can understand, the psychology of those who voted for Brexit, especially in England and outside of London, because it's not really a British phenomenon, it's an English phenomenon outside of London, uh, there are two causes of Brexit. The first one is that the majority of people in England feel not just left behind, but held behind by their own establishment, uh, especially after 2008, when their hopes and aspirations for participating in the financialization racket and uh, making some some money out of the you know the speculation with their own homes, with their pension funds, and so on. Once once that hope disappeared, uh, we have a situation in Britain in 2016 when the referendum, the referendum took place, uh, where 40% of families that that is an astonishing percentage. 40% of families in Britain could not afford to put food on the, food on the table without appealing to charities, food banks, or using credit cards. You only have to state this once to realize what the real cause for the disenchantment that led to Brexit was. That was one dimension. The other dimension was the complete failure of uh, central banks in Europe to coordinate their actions. So between 2000 and, um, 
2009 and 2015, the, the Bank of England, the Central Bank of the United Kingdom, was um, printing money like the Fed was, like the Bank of Japan was, refloating the economy without creating money, any good quality jobs, but nevertheless refloating the economy, when the European Central Bank on the other side of the British Channel was contracting the economy without quantitative easing, without any measure, either the level of fiscal policy or monetary policy, to refloat the economy. So there was a large um, migration wave from the EU to Britain. So you have this combination of British families failing to put food on the table without the assistance of philanthropic organizations or credit cards, while hundreds of thousands of Greeks, Portuguese, Bulgarians, Romanians were flooding into the country, taking advantage of the refloated economy by QE. Now, once you, 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 know, you state these facts, and these are facts, then suddenly there's no mystery in Brexit, there's no mystery in separatism or nationalism or parochialism. But uh, in the case of England outside of London, um, the difficulties that that 40% faced are almost entirely homegrown. They're the product of domestic uh, British government policy, uh, yet uh, the fall guy became the EU. Um, is it just easier to blame somebody else for your problems? No, I don't think so. I think that, the, remember, the United Kingdom is not Switzerland. They don't get many referenda. They only had three referenda in their history. Uh, the first one was in the early 1970s to enter the European Union. The second one was a botched referendum um, some years ago regarding the electoral system that almost no one voted in. And the big referendum was the Brexit referendum. And it is my considered opinion that most people who voted passionately for Brexit were not voting about the European Union one way or the other. They were asking themselves the question, how can we piss off the establishment in London in the most efficient way? So when they saw that the Bank of England, the Chamber of Commerce, the Confederation of British Industry, the Treasury, the OECD, the International Monetary Fund, President Obama, uh, the German Chancellor, the Finance Minister of Germany, Volkan Schäuble, they were all saying to them, pointing the fingers at them, saying, oh, don't you dare vote for Brexit. They said, okay, fantastic ex uh, <laughs> opportunity to piss you guys off. We're going to vote for, for Brexit. And it, Brexit became a way of registering the, uh, their um, objection to the way that they had been treated by an establishment that uh, considered its right to you know, buy villas in France or, or, or Spain as far more important than looking after the communities in northern England or coastal England, which uh, are suffering um, you know, a, a great depression, both economically, but also psychologically. If you look at the consumption of antidepressants in different constituencies in Britain, uh, you find an, an amazing statistical correlation with Brexit, pro-Brexit voting. And of course, now the, uh, the people who'd like to uh, reverse the Brexit uh, judgment are uh, citing the likelihood that a bunch of bankers are going to leave the city of London. I'm sure a lot of people who voted for Brexit will say, good, get rid of them. I mean, that's really not a very effective argument, is it? Well, as someone who campaigned against Brexit in Britain, somebody who campaigned in favor of remaining, of the remain vote, uh, I have to agree with you and I have to uh, confess that every time the official institutional establishment remain remainers open their mouth to um, support remain and confront brexit they gave another great boost to brexit it was astonishing you just gave an example you know as if the people of doncaster or clacton and sea 
are going to shed many tears at the thought that bankers are not going to be attracted to London. It was just a remarkable failure of common sense to see how the establishment remainers were arguing the case against Brexit. Yeah, there's a piece in the Financial Times a couple of years ago uh, quoting a young woman who was having a very hard time making her rent in London saying, I'm tired of living in an asset class. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I was uh, listening to the, to the BBC recently and um, somebody won a considerable amount of money in a lottery. And they asked uh, him or her, so how, what, what exciting things are you, do you prepare to do? Are you prepared? Are, are you planning to do with the money you want? He said, oh, I may be able to put down a deposit for a house. <laughs> so... It requires winning a lottery to buy a house now. That was part one of an interview with Yanis Varoufakis, the economist and former Greek finance minister. His book, Adults in the Room, was published in October by Farrar Strauss. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, ye prisoners of want. For reason and revolt now thunders, and at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstition, servile masses, arise, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition, we'll spun the dust to win the prize. Ah, so comrades, come rally, and the last vital let us face. The internationally unites the human race. As our comrades come rally, and the last fight let us face. The internationally unites the human race. That was some of Alistair Hewitt's version of the Internationale. And now on to part two of my interview with Giannis Varoufakis. Something that's bothered me for close to 20 years now... Um, well, uh, ever since the, the anti-globalization movement arrived in the scene in the 90s, is um, the lack of anything on the left resembling uh, a cosmopolitan vision, some kind of you know, what used to be called in the old Stalinist days proletarian internationalism. Uh, all the objections to uh, coming from much of the left uh, over the last years uh, on these issues of globalization, all the ideas have been to promote nationalism, regionalism, localism. There's no... There has been no vocabulary of solidarity across borders. What do you think about that? Well, I agree entirely. This is uh, the major failure failure of the left. On the one hand, you have um, you know very good good people on the ecological front, um, uh, green parties, ecological organizations, uh, organizations against climate change, uh, that are making all the correct noises against the destruction of the planet, but they lack. This, what you refer to as uh, an international, a proletarian internationalism that will answer the question, okay, so how can we make ends meet for the majority of uh, our populations? How can we make sure that we have growth of the things that we need and which are good for the planet and degrowth of the things that we don't want to have more, like, you know, huge SUVs, gas-guzzling ones. Uh, I will borrow the, uh, your term, and it's a term that I use all the time. The only way 
of uh, confronting globalization in a humanist manner is through a new internationalism, a new progressive internationalism. Now, that used to be a very major part of left discourse, left thinking, uh, and it disappeared uh, somewhere along the lines. What happened? Where did it go? Do you have any thoughts? Well, the left disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, be, let, let's be clear on this. Uh, we have failed. Spectacular. We never recovered from 1991. Uh, we never managed to reclaim a high moral ground or a high analytical ground. Uh, the left either went the way of the third way, you know, the Clintons and the Blairs and the Papandreou's in Greece and uh, the François Hollande's in France, the social democratic tradition that became utterly irrelevant, lobotomized itself and um, was co-opted by financialization, or it could become consumed with identity politics. And the result is, of course, then you don't have a narrative on how to, the, to change the world. Now, we see, you know, in some places a revival of the left, Corbynism, Sandersism. Do you see any hope for some kind of revived internationalism there, or is this more of an inward-looking kind of revival? No, no, I do see a lot of hope, both uh, in the Bernie Sanders political revolution, as he calls it, and in uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Speaking of Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think the same thing applies to Bernie Sanders, even though I don't live in the United States now. And, uh, my, my information is somewhat, somewhat uh, limited with regard to the United States. But the feeling I have, at least for Jeremy Corbyn, is that um, he has done a great deal of service to uh, to politics generally, and of course to progressive politics, uh, a service that we haven't seen for 40 years, because he has managed to succeed in two important dimensions. The first dimension is that he proved to all of us that the fact that we have an ironclad mass media that is determined to be regressive is no excuse for not doing well electorally. <laughs> and uh, the second dimension where, where, he, where he's made a huge contribution is to bring out of the woodwork um, a whole new generation of um, young men and women uh, who proved beyond reasonable doubt that they are very interested in politics. The, the, you know, and the, this was a, a very large... Uh, a group of people that uh, were condemned to political apathy all these years. And the manner in which these young men and women have come out of the woodwork, so to speak, as a result of the progressive uh, narrative of people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, um, is very inspiring because they are clearly internationalists. They are anti-parochials. Uh, they do want to link uh, hands across national borders, even continents. Uh, what we now need to do, we, we need to provide them with uh, the political narrative or to allow them to be part of, of the creation of the political narrative, I should say, uh, that brings about this new internationalism. We're not, we're not there yet. The Bernie Sanders mover, uh, movement is very um, U.S. Uh, uh, introspective. And similarly, the Jeremy Corbyn crowd, while they do have internationalist uh, undertones and overtones, uh, they're concentrating on how to get rid of the Tories and how to change the political uh, situation and dynamic in the United Kingdom, which is perfectly understandable. But what we must do is we must present to uh, both sides of the Atlantic, and not just to the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn supporters, but more broadly, uh, a new internationalism that can uh, re-energize passion 
in a progressive uh, manner because the so far, passion has been energized only by the Donald Trumps and the neo-fascists on both sides of the Atlantic. Corbyn ducks the Brexit question, and there's certainly a lot of people on the labor left who uh, are Lexiters. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of people around Sanders, uh, when they start talking about trade, they sound indistinguishable from Donald Trump. Of course, Tom, Trump is completely phony in his rhetoric, but there is a tendency to blame trade for all of our economic woes, which means international problems. Now, certainly a lot of the trade agreements are uh, basically just, you know, turning the globe into a free fire zone for capital. But um, there's this kind of unwillingness to, to um, focus on the domestic sources of your discontents and an eagerness uh, to blame foreigners in some sense. Do you see any way out of that? Well, how about the following? We should distinguish trade from all those uh, nasty, toxic things that are inside, inbuilt within TTIP, TPP, those trade, supposedly trade uh, agreements, that they have nothing to do with trade. They have to do with power. They have to do with monopoly rights. So um, if you take TPP or TTIP, or SIDA for that matter, uh, what is toxic about them is not the free trade part. Uh, free trade is fine. If, if, you know, if an Indonesian produces some tangible commodity and they want to sell it to us, um, I don't see what is so progressive about slapping a tariff or a quota on it. But the, the highly problematic reactionary part of these trade agreements is, firstly, the dissolution of democratic uh, and judicial processes in our countries. So when a multinational gets the right through this trade agreement to prosecute the government in a tribunal that is, has been set up by lawyers employed by the multinational, then you know that uh, democracy has died. This is what we should be aiming at, not the trade part of the trade agreements, but the non-trade part of the agreements that dissolves democracy, uh, prevents governments and local governments and cities to um, impose their own environmental and labor standards. And we should, um, uh, you know, if we want to prevent the dumping of uh, cheap labor and exploited labor, uh, how about introducing as part of the trade agreements minimum li living wages uh, for any country participating in such free trade agreement? So we should not go against free trade agreements or trade agreements. We should go against the parts of the trade agreements that spread the toxic power of uh, multinationals that diminish democratic process and which set one working class against another. Now, the DM25 movement, which uh, you're working with now, um, is an attempt to uh, develop some kind of uh, progressive internationalism across Europe. Um, you're about to turn into a party, you told me? Yes, uh, we have already voted uh, amongst the organization. We're not going to turn our movement into a party, but we're, but we're going to create what we call electoral wings of our party in different countries. And our objective is uh, May 2019. May 2019 is when the European Parliament elections take place. And we will try to do something weird and wonderful that has never been tried before. And that is to uh, present a single manifesto, a single policy agenda across at least 10 different countries with a transnational party list, if you want, a transnational party and candidates that uh, stand together independently of whether they are fielding their candidacies in Poland, in Denmark, in Greece, in France, and so on and so forth. This has never been tried before. 
Uh, we shall see how it turns out. But firstly, it's great fun trying, Doug. And secondly, it um, gives hope uh, to many people, even those who do not necessarily agree with us or support us, of this uh, alternative to the fake opposition between globalization on the one hand and parochialism or nationalism on the other, the alternative being progressive internationalism, which is what we're trying to implement in, in practice by running across different countries with a single agenda and a single party list. Okay, what, what are the outlines of the agenda? What, what would this look like in, in practical terms? Well, we call it the European New Deal. Uh, and immediately you can see the connections with uh, the United States and the New Deal tradition of FDR, uh, of course, adapted to European conditions. We have a very comprehensive economic and social policy agenda, which we, exp we, we will try to explain to voters across Europe, uh, would uh, do for the, the European Union that which uh, the New Deal and the Great Society project of LBJ in the 1960s did for the United States. In other words, uh, to firstly put the, the financial genie in the bottle and back in its bottle where it belongs, to constrain financialization, to create uh, new payment systems that compete with commercial banks, to use the combined power of the European Investment Bank, which is many times the size of the World Bank, surprise, surprise, and the European Central Bank in order to um, fund and manage pan-European green investment-led recovery projects and at the same time deal with public debt and banking crisis as well as adopting something like the food stamps program of the United States across Europe to be funded by the synergy profits of the European Central Bank. So there is a very practical element to our proposals, things that can be applied you know, on Monday morning without any great constitutional or treaty changes so as to change the atmosphere, to simulate a federal democracy without actually having one to create a new internationalism and a spirit of hope that Europe can be the source of solutions and not just problems for Europeans. And that can be later used in the next two, three, four, five years as a foundation upon, upon which to build a constitutional process, a process by which Europeans will draft uh, that which we do not have, which is a European democratic constitution. I could hear German objections. This is all a scheme just to take our money and give it to those lazy Mediterraneans. Um, how do you answer that kind of critique? Well, in the best possible way, Doug, most of our members of DiEM25 come from Germany. So there is no such thing as the Germans, as Monty Python, the famous British uh, comedians, once said. <laughs> there are many kinds of Germans. And the most um, fulfilling and hopeful message that I can uh, bring to our audience is that um, progressives across Europe are binding together independently of whether they are German, French, Italian, Greeks, whatever, and uh, we are creating a new narrative, a narrative that does not pit Greek against German, Italian versus French, but um, recovers the, the old proletarian internationalism that you refer to with doses of liberalism in it along the lines of uh, policy recommendations that um, uh, start off very moderately how to redeploy existing institutions in a way that uh, serves the public interest, and by public I mean the European public interest, 
uh, and then extend to radical proposals for uh, the post-capitalism that must come. I'm sure also an objection you will hear coming from the left especially is that the EU from the beginning has been an elite project, you know, anti-democratic, uh, constructed mostly furtively by um, guys meeting in rooms distant from any kind of popular democratic accountability. The institution is so corrupt, uh, genetically so, uh, that uh, there's no way it can be reformed. It just needs to be broken apart. Uh, how do you answer that? I'm astounded by this argument coming from leftists. It is as if our own states were created initially by Democrats uh, and freedom-loving lords. They weren't. The United States of America was put together by founding fathers whose whole point of writing the American Constitution they did, if you read the Federalist Papers, that's quite abundantly clear, is how to keep the riffraff, the hoi polloi, out of government how to create a legitimate oligarchy through a Congress system. Uh, the British state was, um, going back to Magna Carta, it was a pact between lords and the king, uh, the purpose of which was to uh, distribute amongst themselves the right to, to have slaves and peasants dependent on them. Uh, the Greek state, my goodness, the Greek state was a direct ex- extension of the uh, feudal regime that uh, grew up under the Ottoman Empire. I've never heard leftists saying that because our states were created undemocratically, oligarchically, tyrannically, that we should dissolve the state. What I hear them saying since the 19th century, since the times of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, is that we need to take over the instruments of the state and put them to the use of progressive causes. Now, why should it be different regarding the EU? Uh, Do you have any um, thoughts on how people elsewhere, like people in the United States, North America, uh, could uh, draw some inspiration from this DM movement. Um, Trump is talking about blowing out NAFTA. I have very mixed feelings about that idea. So how, how could we think about that, you know, in the North American continent? Well, how about the Democracy in the Americans movement that comprises progressives from the United States, from Mexico, from Canada, and, uh, and put forward, in order to put forward, changes to NAFTA that will make NAFTA work for the, for the many, not for the few, as Jeremy Corbyn might say. How about introducing minimum wage legislation in, in, in Mexico instead of uh, trying to interrupt the flow of goods and services between Mexico and the United States? How about bringing down that awful wall between the U.S. and, and Mexico, saying that if you want a proper economic union, Uh, along the lines of free trade, free capital movement, and so on. Well, how about having free movement of labor and prevent that movement from uh, being one way by pushing up minimum wages in Mexico? This is what your proletarian internationalism should be about. It should not be about doing away with with, uh, trade uh, agreements. It should be uh, all about um, turning them into instruments that um, manufacture prosperity for the many, shared prosperity. Another objection I can imagine to this proletarian internationalist agenda would be that an internationalist state of some sort or an international polity uh, is too abstract and too remote for most people, and that you know they just it's too remote from the familiar parts of their lives, and that they feel a quasi natural solidarity with those close to them who are most like them, and uh, have a much more difficult. Uh, time imagining any kind of solidarity or commonality with people who are far away and might speak a different language and you know, have different lives. Is it possible to cross those 
sorts of uh, psychological borders? Well, the United States of America is a good example of that because uh, once upon a time, the same argument uh, was being used in order to argue against the proper federation um, in favor of states' rights and minimalist federal government or no federal government whatsoever. Uh, in Europe, um, um, countries like Italy would never have taken have come about uh, if, if there was no uh, successful argument against this type of um, um, natural sympathy within the town, community, and region. The, let's face it, we, we live on a very small planet, don't we? And it's a planet that is very stressed. Not only do we have face climate change, which none of us can separately fix, but we face uh, crisis of public debt, of very low investment in the things that we need, uh, of poverty, of uh, banks that go haywire here, there, and everywhere. And all these problems that I just mentioned and others resemble climate change in the sense that um, we, we need local action, community action based on kinship, on common uh, culture and so on. But we also need global action. And if we don't have the global action, uh, none of these problems which destroy people's lives daily or undermine people's lives daily can be fixed. That was Yanis Varoufakis, the economist and former Greek finance minister. His book, Adults in the Room, was published in October by Farrar Strauss. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of seasonal music. The opening of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, performed by the English Baroque soloists under John Elliott Gardner. Till next week, bye. <laughs>